For me, it's been quite a week. Um, some of you might wonder why there is no title, because as of Thursday, I didn't have a title. Um, but I have one now, so if you want to write on there, the hour has come. That's what it's going to be. Um, uh, in the interest of preserving time, we are also not going to read from John 7, 1 through 31. We're going to invert the 31. We're going to make it a 13 instead. So we're going to read from John 7, 1 through 13. Hear God's word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly to him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Almighty God, you promise that you will bless the preaching of your word, that it would not return void, Lord. We ask that your spirit would be here amongst us, Lord, and that you would accomplish all the work that you have intended for it. We ask this in Jesus' name. If you're taking notes, we can break this passage into three parts. God's preordained, predestined purpose and plan. The world's peccancy. Now you might be asking, what does the word peccancy mean? That's just an alliteration with the letter P for sinfulness. And then lastly, overcoming Judeophobia and androphobia. And you probably can guess what Judeophobia is, but androphobia is the fear of man. <clears throat> My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. Jesus' words to his brothers in the sixth verse of this chapter echo throughout to the book of John. We see a reference again to his hour in verse 30 when it says, no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. His hour, that the preordained time for the fulfillment of God's plan. This passage and many others in John speak of his hour. The incarnation of the Messiah had one final terminal impetus and goal, his hour. 
Those moments in history, in time and space that would forever redefine the course of the human race. Like the facets of a beautiful diamond reflecting light and translucency, Christ spoke of his purpose in different ways, however. John 12, 27 says, I came into the world to suffer. John 9, for, I, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. John six thirty eight. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John twelve forty six. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. John eighteen thirty seven. I was born and came into the world for this one purpose, to speak about the truth. Whoever belongs to the truth listens to me. These are just a few passages that reveal the different facets of Jesus' purpose for coming into the world that will culminate in his hour. You will take note that Jesus did not have to discover his purpose or become enlightened to figure out his purpose. He knew it from the start, unlike so many other founders of world religions. It is also noteworthy that nothing can thwart God's purposes for Jesus' life. Notwithstanding, Jesus was ever cautious to do anything that would precipitate the people's behavior to do something that would thwart his ultimate goal. We need only look at John 6, verse 15 as proof of this, where it states, When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Allowing people to make him king by force was not part of the father's plan. He did trust the father with his life and the purposes that the father had for him. Nevertheless, Jesus did not put God to the test. Jesus never did what Satan tempted him to do, to cast himself down from the temple just to prove that God's angels would protect him. No, his answer was, you shall not put the Lord thy God to the test. So he stayed in Galilee because the Jews were seeking to kill him, and his hour had not yet come. Yet, when he did, when he did leave Galilee and go to Judea, no one laid a hand on him precisely because his hour had not yet come. Nothing can thwart God's plans in spite of the best efforts of Satan and Christ's other enemies. Consider uh, Job's words, words to God in, in Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things. No plan that, can, that concede, can succeed against the Lord. No insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. And also, I know, okay, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I missed that. That's what I was reading. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And then in Proverbs 21, 3, 30, there is no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. This knowledge of God's sovereignty should be a comfort to us. As I studied this passage, one thing became abundantly clear. Christ's steps also had to be preordained by God. Christ was predestined to do everything he did, 
to think otherwise is foolishness. If there was anyone who you would think would have free will, it would be the sinless son of God. And yet his time on earth had a very certain preordained endpoint that he could not alter without jeopardizing the fate of mankind. So the next logical conclusion would be this. If everything Christ did had a preordained purpose and was predestined, what about me? Is my life preordained? And does God have a purpose for my life? And the answer, of course, is yes. Your life has purpose. And it will not end one moment sooner than when God wants it to. And you will walk in the, in the steps that God has for you. So what is your purpose? Well, we all know it in general. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what the catechism says. So how do I glorify him? 1 Corinthians 10.31 states, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Well, you may ask, well, what about my free will? Well, nobody put a gun to your head today and told you to come to church. At least I hope not. But you have free will only in the sense that you don't know everything that you will do or say from moment to moment. Rest assured, God is sovereign over it all. God, by the very nature of being God, is all-powerful and sovereign and has a plan and a purpose for everyone and everything. If he is not sovereign, then he is not God. Belief in absolute free will is really just another form of atheism and belief in self-rule. At the end of the day, God is sovereign and man is responsible. And we don't understand that entirely. To know it's true, though. There is not a person on the planet that understands how gravity works in its entirety. Nobody can really explain it. But even so, we all know the likely consequences of jumping off of a high building, don't we? When we consider God's purposes in our own lives, it may help to look at an example from history. Eric Little, the man known as the Flying Scotsman and the world champion in the 400, once stated, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. His stand for faith, if you've ever read the the story or watched the movie, and his extraordinary God-given talent helped him obtain a gold medal in an event he had not specifically trained for. And these actions brought glory to God and made him a legend. But his work on the mission field was even more extraordinary. And you didn't get to see that in the movie. When Eric's little's time came, the people at the Japanese concentration camp loved him. Not because he was an Olympic gold medalist, but because he loved his imprisoned brothers with a servant's heart and sought to love everyone in the camp with Christ's love. In fact, he was more passionate about that Then he was passionate about winning gold at the Olympics. He ran the race well for the imperishable prize. 
And he did not die one second before God called him home. If we know that God has a purpose for our lives and that nothing can happen to us apart from God's will, then we should consider well how to live our lives with more purpose. Do you want an example of someone who I believe does this extremely well in our own church? He's probably not going to like me saying this. Jason Stark, I'm going to give you an example about him. You know, the scripture says that the overseer must be above reproach. I know Jason sins, but not because I've ever seen him ever do it. Um, he lives simply. Um, he has driven the same truck since I've known him, I believe. He chooses his words with judiciousness and has a servant's heart. He works with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I think he probably even started the program. And brings children to uh, Christian camps and other things. He teaches, sings, and plays instruments in the church and serves on the pastoral search committee. His work is evident and worthy of emulation. Ask Jason about what what drives him to such excellence. That's that's a question I don't know the answer to, but I'd like to know it myself. Um, He's also quite humble and probably is embarrassed that I'm even talking about him. Scripture says, let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. We know that Jason's a man of few words, but I've never heard him use them to brag on himself. We don't praise the people in our midst nor thank them enough for the work they do as we ought. 1 Timothy 5.17 states, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. You know, I love our elders and our deacons for the selfless service that they render. Thank them. Just don't do it today, otherwise it'll seem trite. There's another type of time that is described here. The now timers. Jesus says of them, but your time is always here. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Eat, drink, and marry, for tomorrow we die. These people are living for the moment. They're living for the world. The world does not hate them because they belong to the world. Consider this passage from Philippians chapter 3. Brothers, join me in imitating and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In this passage, you see the stark contrast between those living for Christ and those living for the world. There are two ends, heavenly citizenship or destruction in hell. Looking to the first few verses of John 7 again, who is Jesus talking to at the beginning of this passage? His brothers. His brothers want him to go down and reveal himself openly to the people. Unwittingly, they are acting as tools in the hands of Satan because the Jews were seeking to kill him in Judea. 
The passage states, for not even his brothers were believing in him. Now we know that James and Jude, um, or maybe Judas uh, is, is the same name, eventually came to believe in Christ, but not apparently until after the resurrection. But according to Mark 6.3, Jesus had four brothers and two sisters. Is he not the carpenter, they say, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? If Christ had siblings that did not become Christians, then we should not be too surprised that we would have family members that do not come to Christ. And just as eventually some did come to Christ, we must pray to that end for our unsaved loved ones as well. Ultimately, we must trust the sovereign will of God in these matters. If some of Jesus' closest family never came to a saving knowledge of Christ, we must trust God with the unbelief of our parents or our siblings or our children. God holds us responsible for our own lives and for the raising of our children in his fear and admonition. But our family always, always is in the sovereign hands of God. I remember Rob Voce once said to me, when our children are young, we talk to them about God. When they're old, we talk to God about them. Verse 7 states, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. The most prominent two takeaways from this verse are the world hates Jesus. And the, world, and the reason that the world hates him is because he reveals an ugly truth. Their deeds are evil. It must seem obvious that the world hates Jesus, but I sometimes think, think that we tend to delude ourselves. We tell ourselves, if they really understood the nature of his kindness, his goodness, his love, his ultimate sacrifice, they would love him. No. Take Jesus' words for it. They hate him expressly because he exposes the evil in their lives. People will always find a way to denigrate Christ because they have an agenda. They have evil in their hearts and they are unwilling to forsake it. The world wants to do what it wants to do. Autonomy. The will to do what they want is the ultimate criteria of the worldly citizen. And everything else comes second. Not too long ago, my brother had a girlfriend that was a strict vegan. I asked him why she chose that lifestyle. His response was that she did not want to kill any sentient beings. For those of you who don't know the definition of sentient, it means able to think and feel. So my immediate response was, well, then she must be pro-life. To which my brother sheepishly responded, well, no, and then, I don't know. I don't know the rest of what he said. Autonomy, to be the captain of my soul, that to the worldly mind is more important than concern against killing a sentient baby in the womb who most assuredly can think and feel. How can rational people believe that killing 
anything but unborn babies is bad? Why are they willing to sacrifice unborn children on their altars but not unborn eagles? Because in the hierarchy of world ethics, autonomy ultimately is the final rule. Abortion is the final solution for people who don't want to voluntarily control their sexual activities. God in his word has many things to say about sex. No wonder Jesus declares that the world hates him because their deeds are evil. Sacrificing children to Baal by making them pass through the fire in the Old Testament is no different than sacrificing them today with a saline abortion, which also burns them to death. C.S. Lewis once described the belief that that we are so much more advanced, so much more just, our minds are so much better, and we're just better in general than, than those in the past is considered what he said, chronological snobbery. We should have no doubt that the concept of evolution was propounded and widely accepted, not because it was good science, but because it was a tool to give intellectuals freedom from the authority of a God who created them. If you have any illusions about the consequences of bad ideas, look no further than the logical consequences of believing in evolution that they had on Adolf Hitler. In Hitler's eyes, Christianity was a religion fit only for slaves, wrote Alan Bullock, Hitler of A Study in Tyranny, a seminal biography. He, He goes on to say, its teaching, he declared, was a rebellion against the natural law of selection by struggle of the fittest. Who were the fittest? According to Hitler, it was the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Aryans. Anybody else in the low, is the lower class of humanity. Oh, how easy it is to be a racist when you believe in evolution. The Ubermensch. I wanted to say that. Ah. The Superman was German. The Jews, the mentally challenged, the the gypsies, the black man, he considered them all to be inferior. Thank God for Jesse Owens. He proved him wrong. The driving principle behind evolution, no doubt, is to give a naturalistic reason for the existence of the universe and its parts, and in so doing, the world can reject God. Consider consider again Hitler's statement about Christianity. Its teaching, he declared, was a rebellion against the natural law of selection by struggle of the fittest. Christians should respond by saying of evolutionary thought, its teaching is a rebellion against the laws of God and the natural order that he has established for how the world he created operates. There's your answer. You know, Stephen Hawkins, the famous, or infamous, depending on how you look at it, atheist, evolutionist, once charged that faith is a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. John Lennox, the Christian apologist, responded to him by saying, atheism is a fairy story for people afraid of the light. John 3, 19, verse 20 states, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. 
Here in John 7, Jesus states that the world hates him because its deeds are evil. The light of the gospel exposes it. They hate the light and won't come to the light for fear of exposure. Without light, we can't see the evil done in the darkness. Nobody wants the evil deeds that they have done, are doing, or plan to do to be exposed to come to light. In Christ, the light of the world exposes every evil deed that has ever been done by man. Luke 12, 2 and 3 states, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. You know, I may have some offended some by the words I've said already, and these attacks on the evil practices of abortion and evolution, I don't know. But what about exposing the light of the evil within the church? Maybe even the evil in our church, the evil in our own hearts. What about that? Can we all agree with Isaiah's declaration in chapter 64? But we are all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. The only good in us is the Spirit of God conforming us to his image. The rest of it, our trying to live the Christian life without seeking to abide in him, amounts to nothing. Jesus says that himself. Can you imagine if what is in our thoughts was actually scrolled across our foreheads like a billboard that you might see in New York City? Imagine that for a moment. I would personally be too embarrassed to even set foot in the church, if that were the case. Peter, fully appreciating the holiness of the Son of God for the very first time, could only say in Luke 5, 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I believe that one of the greatest sins of the people who fill the pews on Sunday is the unwillingness to fully acknowledge the sin in their lives, which is an act of pride. And because we are plastic, not real with each other, it also makes those who have yet to repent of their sins feel as though they have to get their lives right before they can ever come to God. Or like, or they look at our hypocrisy and say, I want no part of what they are offering. You know, one of my favorite songs recently is a song by Matthew West. Some of you are probably familiar with it. Uh, I'm going to read its lyrics to you. Line number one, you're supposed to have it all together. And when they ask, how are you doing, just smile and tell them, never better. Line number two, everybody's life is is perfect except yours. So keep your messages and your wounds, I'm sorry, your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with, with you behind closed doors. Truth be told, the truth is rarely told. Now, I say, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine, but I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, and I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. There's a sign on the door that says, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we live like it was true every Sunday morning pew, would be crowded. But didn't you say the church 
should look more like a hospital, a safe place for the sick, the sinner, the, and the scarred, and the prodigals, like me? Well, truth be told, the truth is rarely told. Oh, I, oh, am I the only one who says, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know what's so, why it's so hard to admit it when being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know, so let the truth be told. Can I really stand here unashamed, knowing that you love me, your love for me won't change? Oh God, if that's really true, then let the truth be told. Oh, say, I say, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not, and you know it. I don't know why it's so hard to admit it, why being honest is the only way to fix it. There's no failure, no fall, there's no sin you don't already know, yeah, I know. There's no failure, no fall. There's no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. You know, you don't have to go into glory, glory, gory detail about the exact sin that you're committing, nor engage in church gossip. But to be honest in your struggles, it will be freeing to you and refreshing to others, knowing that they are not alone in their struggle against sin. Speaking of telling the truth, consider verses 8 through 10. It states, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come, Jesus says. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had not gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, looking at what is just transpired in this passage, we might get the impression that Jesus was not telling the truth to his brothers which would mean that he lied. And if he lied, he was not sinless, which would mean ultimately that he could not be our sinless savior. Schopenhauer, the German philosopher of pessimism, pompously wrote, Jesus Christ of set purpose did utter a falsehood, he writes. But Christians have observed for centuries that if Jesus said he would not go publicly as to attract attention as his brothers wanted, but but that did not preclude him from going up privately, which is what he did. So his brothers wanted Jesus to reveal himself openly, and going up to the Feast of Booths in Judea would be the perfect opportunity to reveal himself to the world. And as he stated earlier, it would also give Jews the perfect opportunity to kill him. But look at verses 10 through 13. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, the Jews were for looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man, others says, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. No doubt, looking at this passage, you can see that the people have an intense interest in Jesus. You could say he was the talk of the feast. They're wondering where he was. There was a lot of muttering, and there were two opinions, one that he was a good man and the other that he was leading the people astray. And both were wrong. Obviously, Jesus was not leading the people astray, but simply stating that Jesus was a good man is, sufficient, is insufficient. In the previous chapter, Jesus stated clearly, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. 
That is not the thing that a good man only, a person that is only a good man would say. That is the statement of someone who is a savior of the world, who is a Messiah, who is a sinless son of God. Only he would make such an utterance. And while this was all happening, what was the overriding concern of the crowd of people? Fear of the Jews. Judeophobia. No one spoke about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Which brings me to my final point. Consider these verses from the Old and New Testament contrasting the fear of man, androphobia, and the fear of God. Proverbs 29, 25 25 states, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Galatians 1.10, For am am, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Isaiah 2.22, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for what account is he? And last, Hebrews 13.6, So we can can confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you sometimes fear speaking openly about Jesus? Are you more afraid of men than of God? It is past time. We must learn to speak out, to be open about God, to speak the truth in love, fearing him and not men, knowing that the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. Just as Jesus had a predetermined time that eventually came, each of us has a defining hour times in our lives where we can take a stand for Christ. That's why David asked God to teach him to number his days. In Christ's case, his defining hour was the day he died. And that might be the case for us, but sometimes our defining hours are throughout our lives. There might be instances in time that define who we are and who we're living for. We need to pray for faithfulness to God's purposes in our lives and discernment. Just as Jesus has a perp- had a purpose to fulfill, each of us has a God-given purpose to fulfill. So whatever you do, do it to God's glory. And just as Jesus was w- willing to expose the evil deeds done in darkness, we need to expose the evil for what it is. And if it's in our own lives, we must confent- confess and repent of it. Let us pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we we pray, Lord, that you would have convicted our hearts of the things that we need to work on in our lives, Lord, and and help us to to not just make a resolve to do it and then leave the the doors of our church and go off and do exactly what we've done every other day. But, Lord, help it to be a real change. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.